You're listening to Young African Entrepreneur, episode 19. Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, the leading resource for starting and growing a business for flourishing entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa. Join in as we discuss tactical advice, personal motivators, and unexpected surprises for industry leaders and market professionals as they chart their own path to success. It's your time, your journey, your Africa. So please welcome your host, Victoria Crandall. Welcome to another episode of Young African Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Victoria Crandall. Today's guests are Will Hunnam and Lonre Olonini, the co-founders of Orbit Capital. You can connect with them at Orbit Capital, O-R-B-I-T-T-C-A-P-I-T-A-L, on Twitter. Close friends since business school, Will and Lonre were veterans of Africa's private equity world. They crisscrossed the continent in search of great companies needing capital for their yield-hungry investors. But this matchmaking process was fraught with difficulties and inefficiencies. For months, they'd work on a transaction which was on the verge of closing, only for the investor to walk away at the last minute. Will and Lonre would bring an amazing company to the attention of an investor who'd only express disinterest since it was in the wrong geography or vertical. The old-fashioned way of deal origination just wasn't cutting it. Frustrated, they brainstormed how it could be done better, and the idea for Orbit was born. Orbit gathers all the players in Africa's investment ecosystem onto a single platform, instantly connecting the buy side, investors, with the sell side, companies, as well as invaluable intermediaries like brokers. With Orbit, Will and Lonre have expanded beyond private equity into private debt and trade finance, which is in hot demand among African commodity exporters. Will and Lonre speak candidly about the penny drop moment when refining their business model for Orbit why VC is a noisy space within the African ecosystem, and what excites their investors in Africa at the moment. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Will Hunnam and Lonre Olonini. Lonre, Will, welcome to Young African Entrepreneur. Thanks, Victoria, for having us. Hi, Victoria. Thanks for having us. So tell us a story about when you knew that you had an entrepreneurial spirit. Lonre, let's start with you. Oh, man. I think mine sort of starts from the family, really, coming from a family of entrepreneurs, both from uh, my granddad and my dad, all being entrepreneurs. And I've always, you know, grown up with the idea that I wanted to be a businessman growing up. So but as you do, you go off to school, you um, get a job and you constantly still get, you know, bogged that you want to do something for yourself. So that's always been in me. Um, but then in terms of, you know, where the rubber meets the road, um, all of that started off um, during and post business school, which is where Will and I actually met. But I'm sure we can talk some more about that um, later on. And what did your parents do? Right. So my granddad owned quite a number of businesses, including kind of like sawmilling, property, petrol stations across um, southwest Nigeria. Um, but my dad, um, we kind of like, you know, travel similar journey to him, he used to work with Cadbury, Nigeria, and then left that to become like, a, um, you know, importing food additives into the country and then um, moved into telecoms, which is kind of what he still does to today. So he's um, into telecoms um, services in Nigeria. Okay, excellent. And how about you, Will? Remarkably similar, actually. You know, both my parents are entrepreneurs. They both have um, had, well, my father's passed away, but he has his own business. My mother still has her own business. Um, So I was always exposed to that. But post um, leaving school, I was very much wanting to, to embrace work and ended up on a 15 year corporate journey. But increasingly through that, then the frustration was building within me and that 
entrepreneurial spirit was fighting its way to the to the surface and I think that's what led me to business school and then very quickly um, after starting um, at business school then left my corporate life and embraced doing more entrepreneurial um, roles. And what do your parents do? Uh, my mother is in retail. She has a retail business. My father's uh, was in uh, recycling business, mainly around scrap metal. Okay, excellent. And Will, you've written that you've experienced firsthand the frustrations. I mean, you just mentioned, again, that, that word frustrations of being an Africa-focused mergers and acquisition advisor. And I'd love to know... What was a story from your career in M&A that really illustrated those frustrations that are typical of the African investment ecosystem? Yeah, and I think it's, um, you know, there's a number of different strands to it. There's, I think, mainly around having, being, representing great companies and not always being able to match them to, to the right investors, uh, just either through the the limits of our network or or such things, or just looking at it from the from the buy side. Sometimes when we're representing investors and trying to source companies, they're not always being able to find that right match between the, the buy side and the sell side. And then invariably, you know, when you're advising and broking, then you're on a lot of success fees. So it means very lumpy revenues, which is, you know, which brings its own challenges as well. Lonry, would you like to add anything to that? I mean, you know, Will has covered it quite well. And I think it's all of that journey that we traveled post running portfolio companies across the continent and working in M&A capital raising for companies on the continent that we came up against those friction points within the African ecosystem. And I think, you know, just to give you some examples, there are times you would have a really nice, decent company out in East Africa where FMCG, say, for example, when you take it out to investors in your ecosystem or in your, you know, contact list, and the guy says to you, oh, it's really nice, but we're not investing in Nairobi just now. If it was in Nigeria, that would be perfect. You know, there's not much you could do about that. So that's where, you know, the seed for, the idea of Orbit actually started to germinate, but I'm sure, again, we'll, we'll talk more about that. And you've, you've both mentioned that you met in business school, correct? Correct. Yeah. And I'd love to know, I, I often ask this question because I personally haven't done an MBA, but I'd love to know, what does an MBA program not teach you about African markets and entrepreneurship? Because, of course, you get a lot of wonderful skills, uh, hard skills, but I think we all know that often you're studying case studies that don't really reflect the dynamism and just how quickly markets are changing, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. So in hindsight, what are some of the things that you found? What were the gaps kind of in your MBA that's a great question, actually. I think, you know, like all other forms of education, not just the MBA, education is a tool and how you apply it to the real world is really pretty much down to you. OK, so common sense always overrides everything. And I think that um, remains true for applying such skills as an MBA or, you know, any forms of academic in Africa. You would know very quickly that, you know, operating in an emerging market, you know, regardless of whether it's Africa or Asia, um, comes with certain nuances and code of conduct and understanding those nuances and the way businesses are done within the continent or within the market. Um, it's, you know, way more important than anything else you'd have um, learned within the four walls of any course you've, you've attended. Having said that, the MBA does, you know, indeed give us a couple of great, great skills and great things. More importantly, I think, obviously, you know, the fact that we actually met and became friends, business partners over the last eight, nine years for us, you know, is definitely one of the immediate value adds that we can always point back to. Um, I haven't done the MBA. But then in addition to that, it's just that the, the flexibility of mind and the framework, the mental framework to be able to figure out challenges and try and come up with um, solutions for either your product or, you know, whatever challenge you're facing within the business environment. I think that's one of the key value adds um, that I would take away from um, any MBA course. What was something that maybe you didn't learn about African markets? The way I'll describe it is just the shocks, right, of operating <laughs> in Africa, right? Mm. I mean, 
you can't really expect everything to to pretty much you know happen as planned if yeah. if I may say it that way yeah so yeah it can't it's, yeah it can't teach you the resilience and adaptability that you need to operate within the market sure. I think that's almost unteachable in some ways you've either got to just experience it and grow within that or you know some people don't enjoy that environment and then they invariably don't flourish in those markets. Right. You have to be nimble and flexible because, you know, African economies are still prone to external shocks. I mean, when you think of Nigeria, before the, the price, the, the oil price collapse, I mean, it was the investor, well, maybe darling is too much of a word to say, but, you know, it was a completely different narrative. And then post 2014, it completely changed. And, you know, very similar, I mean, just many African economies because they're still so dependent on commodities. Yeah. yeah, And that's, um, you know, very important point you've made in terms of the cyclicalities of African economies and how they're kind of like strongly correlated to commodity cycles. But more importantly, as a, an investor or business owner or practitioner within the African ecosystem, you know, having that resilience and the ability to play the long game, it's um, definitely one of the key differentiators for those who succeed and those who don't within the African ecosystem. And I know there's been an Nigerian, right? Mm, yeah, well, that's a great point, just about being able to play the long game. Correct. Okay, so recount to us the conversation that you both had about starting Orbit while you were, was this while you were in business school or just right after you had finished? No, Orbit's really, myself and Lanre have been friends and business partners now for almost eight years. It was 2010 when we started um, our MBAs together. Since, since then, we've worked for the same family office, running portfolio companies for them. And then we had a more kind of traditional advisory brokerage business, helping bridge capital companies on the continent, capital here in London. And then it was through that frustrations that the idea for Orbit was really born in 2016, so two years ago. And it was kind of almost a natural evolution. We'd always tried to think about in our advisory roles and capacities how we could work more efficiently, more in a smarter way. But ultimately, we were always trapped in that same mode of things we've touched on already, such as success fees, limits of our network, etc. And then started to kind of do a bit of research globally on what was going on and identified that there's, you know, other very successful deal platforms globally and kind of that's planted the seed and then started to think about how we could adapt that to the nuances of the African market. Did you want to add anything, Lonre? Yeah, actually, I think I'll just zoom in on the pain points that we mm. tend to like to forget very quickly, um, which was, I think we'd been working on a transaction, really looking forward to any of the fees on, everything was going on quite well, put together the investor and the opportunity, all the data room, all the due diligence, everything was going. I'm just going to jump in here. Where was the opportunity? Which market? Well, the opportunity was in Africa, and it was on a Nigerian Nigerian deal. Okay, okay, yeah. But then, for you know whatever reason, as as these things tend to happen, um, the investor last minute um, changes mind and pulled out of the transaction. And you know that essentially touches on you know the three core pillars of you know what we've decided you know to try and achieve with Orbit is we wasted a lot of time, or rather, you invest time that you don't get back. B, you know, you're driven mostly by success, which is basically success fees. And if that doesn't happen, you don't end your fees. Third one is the whole idea that, you know, there must be a smarter way to do this, you know, being smart. And that was kind of, you know, when that transaction fell through, we sat, you know, with our hands um, looking to the sky and thinking, you know, what do we do here and how do we kind of, you know, avoid this um, repeating itself over and over again. And that's kind of, you know, where we started to come up with ideas and, um, you know, put pen to paper on Orbit. And walk us through the business model. You know, we, and it's, you know, interesting. And, you know, this is about being uh, an interview about being entrepreneurs and how you just have to adapt. And we came from a very private equity focused background. And that's the 
pro that's how we addressed the market because that was the market that we knew so we initially identified that very kind of linear connection between buy side and sell side so connecting global institutional investors private equity funds and investment opportunities on the continent but then obviously once we start unpacking that and um, we realize that you know to be able to service those investors we need to be able to source opportunities and at volume so you know you quickly realized that the intermediaries the investment bankers corporate finance advisors and the brokers are all going to be critical to to generating that volume and being able to make the make the multi-sided platform work I think you know through the through the last 16 18 months since we since we launched Orbit in Q1 of last year then we've continued to uh, to grow and adapt and pivot as we've you know taken a lot of feedback a lot many many hundreds of meetings and discussions with people within the industry those service providers and that's much wider now all of the service providers that have a touch points on a transaction are a critical part of the, the Orbit ecosystem. And that's from origination of transactions. Uh, so that's the guys that I've already explained, the investment bankers, corporate finance advisors who are engaged by the companies to, to raise them capital. But then when you start looking at all of the other service providers that have a touch point on either originating or getting transactions through to close, then that brings all of them in, such as FX providers, insurance providers, guarantee providers, all of these different institutional players that bring services to, um, to get you know, transactions executed. So now we've gone from quite a linear relationship between buy side and sell side to a much more of an ecosystem play so that we are not only connecting buy side to sell side but then bringing in referring connecting adding all of the services that are needed to uh, to get that efficient allocation of capital across the continent and i'd love to uh, i'd love for you to elaborate on something that um a point you mentioned how did what was an example of you pivoting early on? Yeah, I think I mean you know we are still pivoting, and I think you as a as a startup company you still you know you continue to pivot until um, you hit a certain trajectory. So as Will mentioned, I mean some of the pivot points came from a kind of conversations with platform users because one of the things we do on the platform always is to. When you when we onboard new users that sign up, um, you know we always call up everybody that signed up to the platform, right? And obviously we know that for now, you know it's only feasible up to a certain number of users signing up per day. But for now, it still works. So all of that, people kind of say, oh, you know, what if you guys could do X and what if you could do Y? And we capture all of that information and think about, all right, so what's the number of X's people are requesting for and the number of Y's people are requesting for? in terms of functionalities or services on the platform. And we kind of aggregate that and think, okay, you know what, we're going to you know, provide this as in the new version. So an example would be each time we had an intermediary that came up onto the platform, um, you would get them say things like, oh, you know, if you guys ever come across a company needing um, advice, you know, please do let us know as we're also trying to grow a business. And that's, you know, where one of the penny drop moments came, whereby we realized that, if we build the platform not just to be a linear kind of, you know, investor match um, opportunity platform, um, and as we mentioned, we'll make it a multi-sided ecosystem whereby the intermediaries, not only are they bringing their deals to match investors, but they can also originate business development opportunities through the platform. Um, we could diversify our revenue stream and provide additional value-add services to people within the platform. Okay, so are you saying, if if I understood correctly, that from the very beginning, you didn't have the idea to include intermediaries? It was more of like you wanted to do direct kind of buy side, sell side, but not kind of capture these other players in the ecosystem? Is that correct? Yeah, we always knew that certain verticals within that wider group would, would be key, but we were very focused on the investment bankers, corporate finance advisors, 
and less on the the other service providers just because they were identified as sources for transactions but we hadn't really captured in our minds the opportunities on all of the services okay I think, yeah, just the one other thing that I think is really the the large pivot that we've done, and I think we didn't, I didn't manage to unpack this fully earlier, was we, we tackled this originally very much focused on private equity, and then we've um, been educated and learned that about the depth and the growth within the private debt and trade finance markets as well, which have all of the same origination hurdles and challenges. Um, and we've adapted our platform to incorporate those transactions much more efficiently so that we're able to connect those private debt suppliers and trade finance houses to transactions as well. Right. And that's kind of a more interesting target investor for you because those are very short those cycles are very short with trade finance. I mean, typically what? They don't go over 90 days or they shouldn't? Yeah. <laughs> no, you absolutely hit the nail on the head there. And that's kind of what we're seeing both in terms of deal velocity and deal volume, right? So the trade finance opportunities that are coming up on the platform, I mean, you know, just to give an example, last week alone, I think we probably got out maybe, what, $15, $20 million worth of term sheet out to companies looking to raise um, trade finance on the platform. Whilst, you know, the transaction cycle for private equity, you know, as you would know, it's anything from three to six months, you know. So, yeah, you're right. You know, it's quite an interesting pivot we've made um, both from uh, business origination wise and also even adapting the functionalities on our platform to cater for that growing vertical. Right. And um, there's so many commodity uh, exporters, particularly the small and medium sized players that just are starved for finance. So a lot yeah. of these alternative trade finance funds, you know, like you know, there's a lot of demand on the continent for their capital and you really kind of serve that demand. Absolutely. I think yeah. that's it. That's exactly spot on. And, you know, we're not sitting here, I think, I mean, um, putting up our hands and saying, oh, we actually thought about it and figured this out because as Will mentioned, you know, we've come from a very traditional private equity, long-term investing background, but it was again during the course of, you know, taking the product out there and meeting people and, you know, some of the um, events we go to, people say, oh, what about trade finance or what about private debt? Are you guys doing anything there? And, you know, that repet repetitive um, request for that functionality or that service in that space um, was what gave us the signal to pivot into into that um, vertical. And, and yeah, we're quite happy that we've um, caught on to that and um, providing the solutions in that space. Hmm. Well, for sure. And what are some of the tangible advantages of working with Orbit for an investor? Yeah, I think there's, there are kind of twofold, um, really are the, the main ones. Because we screen all of the opportunities, then they know there's a quality hurdle. So they know when we do show them a transaction that the quality is going to be right. It's going to be presented in a tangible way, um, intelligible way, and they're going to be able to move forward quickly on it should they decide to. But I think the other thing, which is kind of critical and it builds on that first point, is that we're a matching service. We're a matchmaker. So we're not – Orbit isn't an open marketplace. So we don't take every transaction that lands on the platform and just blast it out far and wide to all of the investors because – you have to be very selective and we work very closely with the investors to understand month on month what they're looking for, where they are seeking opportunities, uh, whether that's um, across industry verticals, whether that's across geographies, deal sizes, types of capital they're looking to deploy. And we use all of that information to for the matching and we only show transactions to investors that that are the right match and i think that's kind of reflected but i think both of those points build and are reflected in our engagement rate so typically for every 10 transactions that we show to investors eight of them will come back and engage and say yes this is this is very interesting i want to learn more so i think you know being able to get that 80 percent engagement rate is testament to to what we're doing oh awesome 
And I, have you ever come across either an investor or a company that wanted to get on the platform that kind of made you raise your eyebrows, that made you think, meh, this doesn't really seem legitimate? Well, yeah. uh, yeah. every day. <laughs> <laughs> Can you every give day. an example of like what you've come across that just almost made you laugh? <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, and bless their souls and because everyone, you know, on the continent, everyone needs money for for a business and not just on the continent, everywhere you go. But there's just some businesses that are so localized that you can't get foreign investors or they're not, you know, they're not suitable for our audience in terms of our institutional investors on the platform. So just, you know, for example, yesterday, you know, we probably kind of rejected maybe five deals from certain countries across the continent. One was a very kind of, you know, local motel somewhere and the guy's looking for, you know, $200,000 to um, um, refurbish his hotel or his motel or whatever it's called. And, you know, those just those kind of businesses or someone has got, you know, half a plot of land somewhere and looking for $50,000 for agri to invest in their business. So, yeah, we just, you know, whilst we try to make it clear that, you know, we focus on five to $50 million ticket size raises and companies that are in two to $3 million and above revenue, but you can be rest assured that some, I mean, people will still try and see if, you know, they, their project or their deals will be accepted on the platform. Mm. And I think just to build on that a little bit as well, then, you know, there's, there's certain metrics that we have. And, you know, because that's where our investors sit and Landrace touched on that, that five to $50 million transaction sizes and operating businesses, ideally with cash flow, et cetera. But then, you know, because we're natives to the industry and we understand the nuances of working in on the African continent, then, you know, we also have to apply a little bit of that experience when we're selecting what transactions pass through onto the platform. Because, you know, we, we had a great transaction that we're still working on, a medical company um, over in East Africa that had a politically exposed person on the, on the um, related to it. And, you know, typically that would just be a no if you just have a hard and fast set of rules. But because, you know, we know the nuances of the market and we saw that there was a good, strong opportunity there, we work with the with actually the CEO of the company. He was doing some restructuring to remove that PEP and it actually ended up a really, really strong transaction. We got great investor engagement. Um, so, you know, it's not always just um, a checklist exercise and you have to, um, that's what our transaction team spends a lot of their time assessing all of these opportunities um, on each one's merit. Well, and that's so refreshing to hear because too often you feel like really great African companies are just, like you said, are put to this like, you know, bankers or whoever, you know, capital providers just have a checklist. And there's like no understanding of the nuance of these markets or their industries, which denies a lot of really great companies from getting capital. So that's really great to hear. No, yeah, I think that's actually one of our key differentiators to date and hopefully going forward as well. Um, And we get this feedback from the companies we work with or the intermediaries that use our platform is the human touch, right? So it's not just, um, you know, a piece of technology and, you know, everything happens there. We talk to the opportunities, we talk to the principals, we talk to the intermediaries, we get a context always. And that's the most important thing. We always get a context on every deal that we approve. And that comes via um, having a phone call with the or meeting with the, the decision maker, i.e. the principal or the mandated intermediary. And do you also use people on the ground to kind of help supply you with localized information to help you do your due diligence? Because that also obviously is a huge challenge in African markets. It's just access to information. Yeah. Yeah. We have hundreds of intermediaries that we work with across the continent. So, you know, we're able to pick up the phone and quickly do a, you know, a little market sense check on the local lay of the land or, you know, check out an individual pretty, pretty easily. Oh, and that's okay. I hadn't even thought of that, but that's so true. That's kind of another value add of including the intermediaries. Exactly. Absolutely. And it's interesting because Orbit for the capital raises, you will typically structure that either in equity, debt, mezzanine, or trade finance. And I'm curious to know, why aren't you interested in venture capital? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the simple answer to that is it's a bit of a, it's still quite a noisy space within the African ecosystem, if that makes sense. Um, noisy in the sense that 
you know, I mean, there are hundreds of great ideas out there. And we, I mean, hopefully we ourselves are one of them. But then the way venture capital in Africa is, it's not, a, it's not yet a well-developed, well-structured market in terms of the supply of capital. So whilst, you know, you have quite a number of VCs looking for opportunities on the continent, because there are so few, the VCs, they get hundreds of opportunities coming through their door day in, day out. And the way, I mean, what they use as their decision-making criteria is not as set in stone, if I may say that, as um, you would find with maybe a PE or a trade finance um, investor. So for us, um, we are just of the opinion that it would take, you know, just quite a lot of effort to be able to apply this idea as it stands to the VC space. And um, Will, you said before in an interview that you've found kind of, you know, you found a lot of demand mid-market private equity funds. And mm-hmm. I thought it was fascinating because you said that mid-market, these kind of mid-market funds tend to be less conservative and more open to new ideas. So they're more keen uh, to work with a, you know, a digital solution. And why is that? They're maybe they're a little bit hungrier. They also tend to be, you know, just less on the scale, they're less institutionalized, so they have, they all still have that more entrepreneurial ability to make decisions. It also comes down to individuals. So you can still find very forward-looking, engaging individuals within some of the larger funds, but we tend to have better traction, I think, in the mid-size. But then also their origination routes probably the area where there's the highest friction. Um, you know, the, the large funds have very large networks. They have their own origination processes and teams that they're willing and able to, to carry the cost of. Whereas a smaller fund, you know, smaller funds, smaller management fee need to be more dynamic and in how they originate transactions and how they manage their portfolio companies. So just it's uh, economics apart from anything else. Well, and how would you define um, kind of a mid-sized fund? Like how much, how much in terms of money? Um, that's good. I think, you know, just to give you an example of the type of guys, people that we work with, you know, there's everybody from multi, multi-billion dollar funds all the way down to disaggregated funds that raise capital on a transaction by transaction basis. So we have the full breadth, but I think, you know, the, the kind of sweet spot for us is probably that 80 to 150 million dollar funds because that fits quite nicely with our sweet spot on the transactions which is typically around the 25 million mark so you know if you've got a 150 million dollar fund then you're going to typically look at you know anywhere transactions five to i mean 10 to 15 10 to 20 maximum so that kind of fits quite well for us and your investors who are on the platform where are they really keen to invest in on the continent? Like which countries are attracting a lot of attention and which sectors? Yeah, good question. I mean, you would get the usual suspects, right? So Kenya, um, Nigeria, Ghana, Zambia, which are kind of, you know, the usual Ivory Coast in you know, from the Francophone side. Um, those are kind of, you know, the usual suspects in terms of countries that we see investors demanding opportunities from. Having said that, um, you you then have a pocket of other countries that are really doing well quite now, uh, right now, and that investors are interested in. So this would include countries like Zambia, you know, Egypt, uh, Morocco, Senegal. Um, you know, there's a lot of demand for commodities, trade finance in in all of those um, places I've just mentioned. With regards to sectors, it's quite interesting that one actually, and I think across board. What we find is that agri-processing has been sort of like hotcakes, being one of the sectors that investors all want to get into. And I think we have an idea of what's driving that. But yeah, agri-processing is interesting. Financial services is interesting. Education, hospitality. And then, of course, you know, again, commodities in terms of the trade finance. Do you want to add anything, Will? I think just it's very interesting to, you know, unpack that that ability for us to see where that aggregated demand is 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 
you know, it's a real privileged position, but it's also something that we're able to then feed back into the industry and then be able to better satisfy that demand. So, you know, just being able to take a snapshot and be able to show, you know, at any given day how much capital we've got available for uh, Kenya or Ethiopia or for agriculture or for logistics. It's powerful information. Yeah, and that's a great point. You're like capturing all of this real-time data on supply, yeah, on the on the buy side and the sell side. So you can really see, you know, exactly pinpoint where the demand is across geographies and across industries. So that's that's fantastic. And what are the large macro trends that you see dramatically changing the Africa investment landscape in the next five years? I think, you know, technology is just so obvious that the influx of technology across various sectors, various industries within the continent is going to be a big driver. Um, and I think our companies, either the invest um, as an investor or, or business owner, adapt and um, um, deploy technology in their businesses is going to be a very interesting one to, to observe. Typical macro stuff across the continent, I think the usual suspects again still remain the same, which is going to be commodity pricing. Um, you know, what happens to um, the price of oil, what happens to the price of you know soft commodities, which you know are not really being determined by African countries. So take oil for example, you know once the price of oil goes down, what does that do to 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 the major oil exporters on the continent, Nigeria, Angola, and um, to a relative extent um, Egypt? You think about you know foreign exchange and geopolitics. You know what does that do to countries like Zimbabwe's election coming up, or to South Africa? In the next, you know, the next couple of years as well. So yeah, I think you know the, the usual macro factors that affect African economies still remain the same. But I, I think the the main one to watch is going to be the role of technology in the next five years. You know, I wanted to ask you this earlier, but it slipped my mind. Have you been having interesting conversations about Ethiopia with your investors? Uh, yes, we have, and um, you know, we've actually just got a um, a term sheet out for twenty five million for a company there um, just last week. Still getting pushbacks and forwards a little bit the term sheet, but everybody's um, wanting to, to to move forward, so that's really encouraging. And um, we managed to get that funded pretty quickly as well. That's really interesting, kind of agri processing business with their own intellectual property as well so so we saw there was really strong strong demand on that so that's just you know one indication of what we're seeing um in that particular country no i mean it's just it's really a sleeping giant and there's so much change coming out of ethiopia right now it's like you watch the headlines and you're like oh wow what's going to happen today so i'm sure you've that's been reverberating like with your with your clients of i would imagine they're keeping a close eye on it because yeah it's a country of 100 million people and like has so much potential yeah i think you know to just to touch on to what will has said and um your point um we're seeing you know, interesting opportunities coming out of Ethiopia. And uh, we're going to be out there September um, as part of our roadshow slash events on the continent in partnership with an African events organizer. So, yeah, we're going to be spending some time in Ethiopia and other countries in that region, Tanzania, Rwanda, to be specific. Uh, but, yeah, 100% um, Ethiopia is very exciting, actually. Okay. And in this last part of the show, I tend to focus on my guests, their, their general thoughts on entrepreneurship and what advice they would give aspiring entrepreneurs on the continent. So given your vast experience in the investment space, what advice would you give entrepreneurs about pitching investors? Just specific to Africa, I think the two, three things that I would always say and we see this especially with you know deals on the platform and also from our experiences just the presentation is key right because that's the first point of contact an investor has with your opportunity even way before getting into the nuts and bolts of the business etc sometimes you know you see presentations sent to you that you li- literally cannot make heads or tail out of so i would say focus on your presentation and make it as clear concise and as intelligible as possible. And generally, how many slides for a pitch deck? 
kind of what's what's the norm? We've got our own kind of rule of thumb here, right? Which is we always assume that whatever we send out to people, you've got only the investors got only three to five minutes to read it. Okay, so I would say keep it to 10, 15 slides maximum. And then if you've got extra important stuff, you can always take any appendix. But I think 10 to 15 slides is a rule of thumb. Okay. That's one. And then obviously the other bit is have your story right in terms of, you know, how you pitch your story as well. So it's not just the, you know, elevator pitch, which is kind of, you know, textbook stuff, but, you know, being able to tell a story as part of the, your business opportunity. So where has this come from? Where is it going? And what do you need to get to where it's going? I think that's also very important, especially when you're pitching to raise, to raise capital. And I think, you know, the third one is, you know, listening to the investors. You know, the fact that an investor might say no or is not necessarily interested at that point in time doesn't mean you can circle back. So take all the feedback and, you know, fire that back into your either your pitch or fire that back into your product development or whatever ideas you have. So those are kind of like the three pillars I tend to think about quite often, but I'm sure there's loads more out there. Well, are you an advocate of kind of, even if an investor says no, for whatever reason, is it a good idea for the company just to regularly check in, you know, and say, hey, these, this is a progress I've made. This is, you know, this is where I am. Just to stay in touch. Is, is that kind of a good tactic? Definitely, definitely. And I think the other thing is, is really listening as well. You know, you're sat doing these pitches and you go in there with, with your script and with your material and you want to get your story across. But you really need to listen as well because you're typically sat across the table from some pretty smart people who've been there and done it and you know they've they've cited many and many of these pictures before what they the questions they ask then you sh- you need to be you need to think about seriously and reflect on and then make sure you have answers because you're typically going to get asked the same things again and again so uh, and even just feeding back into your your business model your business because if you've got gaps then you know then gaps in the answers but that typically relates back to gaps in the business as well yeah and then yeah definitely keep investors um, up to date with your development sometimes it's not just a case of not being a sound business we just might not be at the stage where um, the investors are able to come in they might want you to grow a bit more i'll take off a few more kpis so yeah you know you just don't don't shut the door keep the door leave the door open for for the guys to cycle back into yeah, and and even you know, you, it might be nothing to do with your business. It might be just the stage where the where the investor is. Maybe they're overweight in your jurisdiction, overweight in your industry, and that can that can change very quickly. All it needs is one exit or one other deal to fall through, and then you can be next in line. Yeah. And what's the best advice you've personally received as an entrepreneur? Find a good co-founder. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's invaluable advice. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Rapidly go crazy otherwise, I think. Yeah. And how would you define, you know, finding a good co-founder? Yeah, I think we're just, I mean, we we always say we are rather fortunate that we've been, you know, friends, right? And we've worked together, you know, for so long um, that we kind of pretty much finish each other's sentences and we get, you know, we kind of read each other's mood quite well. So, yeah, you know, it's about the chemistry and but I think most important is the ideological slash philosophical alignment in terms of how you guys, you know, view the world, mm. right? So what's your mm. what's what's your key drivers? Is he trying to are you guys trying to get in there just to make money? If that's it, then you know it's um, game over from the start. But if um, you guys are you know genuinely interested in making a change, having an impact. And building something that is sustainable, durable, but at the same time creates value for both the users, yourselves, investors, your team. Um, then I think you know you're definitely onto a winner. Mm. And I think you've got just building on what Landry said. I think it's very much around that you've got to have that chemistry, those same values. But then there's also kind of more mechanical stuff, like you know, it's helpful if you've got complementary skills and you can cover different areas and things like that as well. Right. A good division of labor. Yeah. Yeah. And on the flip side, what is advice that you've heard for entrepreneurs working in Africa that is just, 
ill-suited to the market that, yeah, that maybe works in the U.S. or developed markets, but does not work at all for Africa? For African entrepreneurs, I especially African entrepreneurs that are on the continent, and I've got a few friends who kind of, you know, tick that box. Um, so these are guys that have either moved back from the U.S. or the U.K., gone back onto the continent and start up companies. It's a tougher challenge than, you know, being in a, you know, functional ecosystem like London, New York or San Francisco. And I think, you know, being able to configure your business or your idea um, and especially, more importantly, your fundraise strategies into those markets is very, very important. So if I give a good example, some of my friends in Nigeria work in, you know, in the tech world. When they go out to raise capital, especially locally from, from Nigerians, the investor community there absolutely want to see cash flow protections, even if it's only an idea, right? Which, you know, if you're kind of taking the typical textbook startup idea you want to just show investors this is a tra- you know the plan this is the direction of travel as we move closer to getting into the market then we probably will have an idea of our financial projections which people here in london get people in san francisco get but locally it's different they want to see projections from the get-go so just understanding those nuances i think it's it's important but i'm not sure if there's any you know specific advice that i would say it's the one to to avoid, but just, you know, understanding the market you operate in. And what are a couple books that have left an impression on you recently? Uh, I can go first. Uh, my one, two, actually, if I may. Is it okay to go for two? Absolutely. Sure. So the first one I th- was the Industries of the Future. Alex Ross, I think. Yeah, Alex Ross. Industries of the Future, that's called. And I think that was a great book because... It came at a time where, you know, Will and I have come from pretty much similar career backgrounds as well. So having worked in oil and gas all of our career, we're pretty much, you know, very conservative minded and not really thinking much about technology about five years ago. We just, you know, stay within the oil and gas world as we did or capital raising world. But Industries of the Future was one of the books that absolutely kind of sensitized um, me to thinking about how the entire, you know, the fourth industrial revolution, as they call it, right? So our industries around you are being muffed and being changed by technology. So I thought, you know, reading, coming to the end of the book, I thought, okay, now I get it. You know, definitely um, everything you do, every sector you're getting into, our technology will redefine that is an important um, concept you need to have a grasp of. And the other one, which is a bit more just philosophical, is The Fifth Mountain. I think uh, Paul, Paul Casillo, um, Fifth Mountain. And I think, you know, that's more of a, you know, just on the how you stay the course through any idea, vision you have and, you know, ride the ups and downs of it to get to your final destination. Yeah, and I think for myself, it's um, Matchmakers by David Evans, which is uh, Matchmakers, the New Economy of Multi-Sided Platforms, which kind of gave us a lot of language and almost thought frameworks about, you know, this was at the inception of Orbit and what we were really building and gave us a lot of guidance on that. So that was... uh, very powerful and very timely to uh, give given what we were doing. And if you could take a one-year sabbatical from Orbit and you could go anywhere in Africa to learn and improve your business, where would you go and why? Hmm. I would go to Nairobi. And I don't think it would be more, you know, to learn and improve the business, but I would just really be interested in... Um, teaching about entrepreneurship and also observing and learning how the local entrepreneurs on ground are able to come up with ideas and, you know, build amazing businesses and amazing ideas that have come out of um, Nairobi. Um, I think I'm definitely a big fan of um, what's going on in the Silicon Savannah, as it's called. And for myself, that's a good question. Probably I would go west, I think. I think I would maybe go actually to your home. I'd potentially go to Abidjan and try and get a lot more exposure on Francophone Africa. 
and improve my French skills and, you know, and business relations and contacts there and really get a feel for the nuances of the, the Francophone market. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, Abidjan is, is definitely the gateway to Francophone West Africa. Yep. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And if you had a billion dollars, which sector in Africa would you invest in? Education, 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 education for me. And the reason being, you know, uh, as an African and a Nigerian, and I'm sure you're quite familiar with some of the nuances of discussions we have, you know, amongst ourselves about the future of Africa and why this is not happening in Africa, etc., and all of the corruption this and governance that. The more I've thought about all of those various sometimes superficial challenges or things that people grapple with or complain about in Africa. Um, the one panacea I always think about is education. So if we could invest in education across the continent and improve and lift up, you know, the education capacity with the, within the continent, then I think, you know, the, the sky really is a limit in terms of what Africa could become. Because we all know each person within the population is an economic agent. And as an economic agent, if you are not well-educated or well-equipped with the skills to be optimal in your contribution to the economy, then everything else has to crumble from that, you know, that nucleus. So I believe strongly that investing in education is definitely um, one of the key panaceas to the, to the African challenge. I think Landry's hit the nail on the head there, but I think if I was going to choose something counter to that and something much lighter than, say, tourism, so that people from that not being exposed to, to the African continent can come there and really see and feel it rather than just hearing what's on the news, which invariably is just the, the worst of the headlines. Oh, that's an interesting take on that. Mm-hmm. Well, and if you wanted to invest in a sector that that has so much potential for high returns, what what kind of interests you? <laughs> Financial tech. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> it's putting two years of our life into this. I think just tech everywhere, as Landry said, you know, it's it's the future. But you can see incredible things being done. Even if you look at, you know, oldest industry in the world, you've got agriculture. And then some of the things which are being produced and ideas coming out around that and incredible. So, um, yeah, I think just technology as a whole umbrella, but then there's so many different verticals and applications of that that um, there's lots of different neat ideas and, and stuff being done. And as we wrap up our conversation, I'd love to know if you could give one piece of actionable advice to an aspiring African entrepreneur, what would it be? Stay the course. Um, it's going to be tough. Um, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be inspiring. Um, you're going to get lots of mixed emotions, but whatever it is, um, be passionate about it and just stay the course of it. And there's no time like the present, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you need to take time to let your idea formulate, but then uh, then move forward and learn as you're going along. That's let great. Me ask, uh, remind me, it's, it's okay to break some things along the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great advice. Lonre, Will, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. That's all for this episode of Young African Entrepreneur. But we can use your help in evolving this show through your feedback and suggestions by engaging with us on social media at YAE Podcast. You can also visit yaepodcast.com for show notes, resources, and information on today's episode. That's yaepodcast.com. It's your time, your journey, your Africa, young African entrepreneur.